G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. It's the Friday edition of 2020 and yes, we're going to jump into the deep end today. Talking government, talking politics, talking God and his role in what happens perhaps in the nations of the world, perhaps in the machine of our own government and where we all fit into that. This week, of course, the Treasurer handed down the federal budget. We're all interested in that. Um, Sets out a plan for Australia's future years. You might have even caught last night the opposition budget reply. Well, there were lots of financial figures in the budget and for many that's baffling if you don't have a handle on the economics. But there may be more and deeper issues to consider today as we explore the effort that empowers a government through policy advisors, through public servants and delivery of all sorts of propaganda, you might call it, through the media. Well, this week's federal budget has been delivered in challenging times globally. And you'll know, as we talk about it often, public morality is changing rapidly. We all realise that the mechanisms of government are driven by politics and people who align with ideologies. So how do Christians understand government and ideologies? Is God interested in government and ideologies? And what role might we all have in helping make good things happen? Well, you might be aware of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, an initiative bringing together proven leaders holding biblical Christian values and shaping new generations to lead. Well, our special guest leads that organisation. The Reverend Dr. Dan Anderson is Director and CEO of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. He's based in Canberra where it's been a chilly morning. Hey, Dan, a special welcome along to 2020. Thanks so much, Neil. It's really wonderful to be with you today. A little frost on the lawn this morning, Dan. Yeah, where we live is uh, beautiful. It's in Murrumbateman, which is about half an hour out of Canberra. Looking out this morning, it was all white, everything frozen, uh, sub-zero temperatures. Uh, so you know you're alive. Um, but we were we actually had worship this morning with our students here and we were singing and praising God and looking out over that as the sun came up was lovely. Yeah. Okay. You have my sympathy. It's uh, been fairly warm here where <laughs> we're based in Brisbane. Hey, uh, let's talk about leaders, politicians, government, and perhaps a good place to start in a Christian conversation, and we're going to get into some deep waters today, but why don't we start by taking to heart a call, even that comes from a scriptural foundation, to pray for our political leaders. And for everyone who is in our conversation today listening, uh, perhaps this is something we can all be involved in. What are your thoughts here about the necessity for the believer to be praying for those who lead us, whether we like them or not? Mm. I Well, I mean, it's, as you say, Neil, it's a command, isn't it? Uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul urges that prayers be made um, for all kinds of people and all kinds of leaders. Um, and he actually describes also the kinds of prayers. So they're prayers, intercessions, and interestingly, thanksgivings. 
Um, and that sometimes is a challenge for us, isn't it? It's the it's the thought that even we should be thankful um, for for our, our political leaders. Sometimes it feels hard to do that. Um, but one of the realities living in Canberra is that you get to know a lot of the people who are working in the public service. And, and when we talk about the government, we mean much more than just the 150-odd people who are sitting in the house up on the hill. We, we mean lots of people who are working really hard together um, to, to do a bunch of this stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, in the case of Canberra, you're talking about a big percentage of the actual city, the people that you're going to be uh, crossing paths with in the supermarket. You're talking about people who are working their day-to-day lives and etching out a life together, and they're involved in the cogs, uh, the wheels of progress in the government. Uh, so, yes, Canberra is really uh, one of those very intense places where everybody's involved in the future of our nation. Yeah, that's exactly right. About 50% of the people in Canberra work in some way in the public service, which is, makes it a very strange city. Um, and there's, there's good and bad things about that. We speak about the Canberra bubble um, and that sense that it's very easy in Canberra to become detached from the real lives of people in other parts of the country. Um, and, and that is a real problem, I think. Um, but at the same time, there's some positives to it as well. Um, it actually sometimes protects our public service from from corruption, to be honest. Like, um, if you if you have lots of big businesses and companies right up next door to the public service, they're forever leaning over the fence and kind of saying, hey, what about this? Um, so it does sometimes work in our favour as well, to be honest. But it does weird things. One, one of the things I remember was... Um, the petrol prices in Canberra would go up and down every fortnight because everyone, 50% of the people in Canberra would get paid on the same day. So the day before, all the petrol prices would go through the roof because everyone knew when payday was. So things like that can be very strange. What do you make, Dan, of the thought of a Canberra bubble? We often will hear about this and politicians who are almost uh, insulated from, sometimes we will talk about insulated from the Christian response to some of the policies because things seem to be so different. Uh, what are your thoughts around a Canberra bubble? Is there such a thing? Yes, there, there definitely is, Neil. But having said that, we all live in our, our bubbles to some extent, right? Like if you live in rural Queensland or you know um, remote parts of Northern Territory, you, you've got your friends and your relationships and, and you're only able to kind of see the part of the world that you live in and we all have that. The, the job for us, I think, is to keep making sure that we build the connections and get outside our little bubbles as much as we can. And at its best, I think Australian government forces people to do that. The vast majority of our politicians don't live in Canberra. Um, and that is actually one of the hardest things of the job. I'd say it's the hardest thing of the job if you're a Christian politician is that you're travelling backwards and forwards from, from home to work, sometimes on the other side of the country. Um but it is true in the public service as well that a lot of people go to uni in Canberra, they end up getting a job in the public service and this is their entire life and they don't know much outside it. And perhaps a conversation today, we're, we're probably going to frame it a little around the federal politics and what comes out of Canberra. Uh, but all of our states, they're doing their own thing too. They've got their own state bubbles as well, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. And and I think that's one of the ways in which we should be thankful for our system is that we have different levels of government. So we've got government at our local council level. We've got it at our state level. We've got it at our federal level. And each of them have different perspectives. And it's because we have this federal system where we those things interplay with each other that sometimes we get better decisions and maybe more freedom than we would if everything was just run out of one city in the country. And from your perspective, Dan, if we're talking about the people who make up the immediate machines, uh, the ones in Canberra, those who might be in their own state or in the local government sphere, uh, there are going to be lots and lots of people who hold to a Christian ethic. 
and there's going to be lots and lots of people who hold to other ethics as well. Uh, but from your perspective, are you seeing that there is a Christian voice that's coming to the surface, involved in the policy debates? Are you seeing a Christian voice behind the scenes, not necessarily the things we see in the media, but uh, behind the scenes, policy development? Uh, what are you? What's your perspective here? Absolutely, Neil. There, we have some very, very senior leaders in our public service who are committed Christians. Um, you know, secretaries of departments and heads of really major sections of our of our political machinery, as as we keep talking, are, are committed Christians, and they're they're upfront about that. Um, and so, we, again, lots of reasons to give thanks there. Um, like, like Jesus' little parable of the kind of yeast that works its way through the whole bread. Like Christians are like that in our society. We're not. We're just not sectioned off into one place. Again, sometimes the bubbles that we live in don't help us to see that. And and one of the real challenges we have in Australia is with our media. Um, and our media is probably one of the places where there are less Christians. And so even when our media is sympathetic to Christian things, they're just not very good at reporting about it. They just don't get it. Um, and so what tends to happen is that the the media filters out the Christian reality of what's often going on in the background. So there might be, and there are, as I say, I've got good friends who are very senior leaders in the public service and in the government, but you wouldn't hear that necessarily because it gets filtered out when it goes through the media. Interesting. You've got the politicians and you've got the public service and you've got the media. And as you say, there are going to be fabulous people and we might hear about those who do wear their faith loudly and proudly. Others might be forced uh, in a cancel culture age to be a little more diplomatic with their faith. I'm not saying they're hiding their faith, but they might be cautious when they speak up and when they hold back. What are your thoughts here for people who hold to a Christian ethic, Christian values? They have Christian belief, but they're in a government system and they realise they've got to tiptoe through the tulips a little here just to make sure, A, that their position is in place and that they actually are saving their opportunities for influence. Any thoughts here about people who might be just a little bit you know, guarded with their faith? I think this is the major kind of sort of tactical challenge that you have if you're a Christian in this space. And there are two dimensions to it. One of it, one of them is what you've said, which is that how do I um, stay true to my principles? How do I keep making sure that I'm a follower of Jesus before anything else, that that's my primary allegiance? And yet that I deploy that allegiance in a way that is um, most strategically valuable. So, you know, Daniel in Babylon becomes a very senior official in the public service, but he doesn't fight every battle. He fights the most important ones. Um, there are things he doesn't fight the battle about having his name changed to make it sound more pagan. He's happy with that. But he does fight the battle about what he eats. And that, that's kind of interesting, isn't he? So he's got he's got a theory about that. And every Christian needs to work that out. And that's part of our job as fellow Christians and church members is that the people who are in our churches and in our Christian communities, as we read the Bible together and teach the Bible, we're helping them to think that through. Like what is, we're giving them the framework for thinking wisely about how to be a Christian in politics. The other part of the challenge though, is that in our system, when you're appointed to government, you're appointed to be governing for the whole country. And so occasionally Christians find themselves in these really difficult situations where where the clear majority of the people in the country want one thing, but me as a Christian, I, I don't want that or I don't think it's good. Um, and, and then what do I do in those moments? And I think probably some of the most challenging moments for our senior Christian politicians in the last couple of decades, 
particularly around things like um, bioethics, so like abortion and end of life and same-sex marriage, have been where the people of the country have expressed a clear preference and yet it's it's in, not in line at all with what they as Christians believe. And then you've got, oh, well, what am I supposed to do here? My job is to represent the people. I believe in a separation of church and state, but at the same time, is this me betraying my faith in the Lord Jesus? And I, in those moments, that's where I really want to be on my knees in prayer because that is a tough, tough moment. Yeah. So those Christians who are involved in either the politics or the bureaucracy or the media are choosing your battles Uh, It might appear to a lot of our listeners today that we've been losing a lot of battles lately. Uh, Losing a battle doesn't mean you lose the war. Is there a short game and a long game here? Uh, When we talk about, you know, raising up Christian leaders, as you do, uh, it's a long game exercise you're in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And when I talk with young people about what it looks like to be in politics and what the challenges of politics are, um, I often don't talk about the particular political issues of the day. And and they are big and very important. But the big challenges for us as, Christian, as Christians are, are probably, you could probably summarise them in three ways. One is, one is knowing how to engage and what wise engagement looks like. And we've just had a conversation about The other is knowing how the Bible shapes your thinking about these issues. So how do I move from a biblical understanding to a particular policy? And then the third one is is actually how do I keep my character and my allegiance to Jesus strong in an environment which is constantly trying to shape me so that I become a disciple of something else. So those are the big challenges. Same-sex marriage or transgender issues, those are the mo- issues of the moment. But the, the things that never change are the question about wisdom about how to engage, how does the Bible shape my vision, and how do I keep my character um, one where I'm following the Lord Jesus. A biblical perspective on life culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. We're talking about Christians and what Christians think about the cogs in the government machine. And our special guest is around these sorts of issues. He's developing the leaders of the future, the Reverend Dr. Dan Anderson. He's director and CEO of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. He's based in Canberra. I mentioned, Dan, we might talk about ideologies. Sometimes it's a word we're hearing often, but we sometimes don't necessarily understand that by way of, you know, a definition. And when I'm talking about ideologies, there's ideologies on a number of different sides here. But I wonder if you've got a thought about ideologies and, and the way that they sort of shape government and shape public service and shape the media. Yeah, we tend to use the word ideology when we're throwing a bit of shade on someone when we don't like what they're doing. So ideology tends to mean a a systematic way of thinking about something. Um, And usually when we use it, it means a systematic way of thinking about something that we don't like. Um, But as you're kind of saying, Neil, if everyone has a set of lenses that they use to see the world Um, and probably a better way to think about it might be um, we all have a, a set of things that we love and that we want out of life. Um, they're the kinds of things that kind of get our hearts moving and our, and our heads engaged. Um, and there are systematic ways of talking about those. Different groups of people have things that they love in common. Um, and, and an ideology, either on the right or the left or maybe even in a church, is a kind of systematic way of talking about the things that that group of people love in common. 
I came across an interesting quote, and it came from uh, the philosopher Bertrand Russell and dates right back to 1950. And I was fascinated by this, and I'll get your thoughts here, but he said, we are now again in an epoch of wars of religion, but a religion is now called an ideology. I wonder if it's appropriate, Dan, to think about the big political debates as religious debates, because sometimes we feel like that's religious or that's secular. What are, what are your thoughts here about if you align an ideology with a religious position? Yeah, I think that's really insightful. And, and Bertrand Russell's an interesting character because most of the time he's someone that I find is on the other side of debates from me. But um, in, in this particular case, I agree with him pretty strongly. And what he's picking up on there is um, that every, if you think about ideologies as systematic ways of thinking about what we love all of our loves come together around one big thing don't they and in christians would call that worship um, and so very famously um, a novelist named david foster wallace um, in, an, in an address to kenyan college um, said to the students of that college that everybody worships um, you just don't always know it and you need to be careful about what you worship because what you worship will end up eating you alive is one of the things that he says. So if you worship money, you'll become like it, you'll obsess over it. And an ideology on the right or the left or a religion, whatever it is, is fundamentally about things that we love in common and what are our highest loves? What are the things that we love and are ultimately good and worth serving and worshipping? And that could be a free market or it could be liberating the oppressed or it could be Jesus or it could be Allah. It could be a whole range of things. And the question that each of us has to answer most fundamentally is what do we love above everything else? Um, Interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus' words, well, you can't serve two masters. Uh, you'll serve one, uh, you'll love one, you'll hate the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And so if mammon is, mm. you know, sometimes we think about that as money, but it's actually a little more than that. Have you got any perspective here on on uh, the fact that if you align the things that we believe with a religious position, uh, whether you say you're non-religious or not, uh, or you say you are religious or you're not, um, what are your thoughts here? Serving God, serving mammon, uh, there's something here Absolutely. that's especially powerful from Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, and Paul will even take that idea and develop it further. He's, he says greed is idolatry. Um, I can't remember in which letter he says that. Someone will Google it and let yeah. us know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but that, he's saying exactly that, that, that the love of money is a form of worship. Um, it's making it, what is actually in its own place a good thing into an ultimate thing, um, something that we ultimately live for. And again, at their best, political ideologies are just systematic ways of talking about what we love. And that, that's useful. It's helpful to have categories for those things. At their worst... They're, they're describing the things that we ultimately love more than anything else. And what is common across all secular ideologies, whether of the right or the left, is that what is ultimate in them is humanity. What we love above everything else is ourselves, whether on the right we talk about our freedom or on the left we talk about our identity. Um, what we're ultimately saying is that what we love above everything else is ourselves. Um, and that's one of the things that Christians can never buy into. For us, what is ultimate, what we love, what our ideology is, is around Jesus and, and his Father. Yeah. So when you're building a Christian worldview, uh, you're training those young leaders of tomorrow how to think about things, this is the sort of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Uh, it's not about yourself, it's about 
how you think about things in relation to who God is, because that is what makes him most important and how that actually translates into the the decisions we make about our own futures and the decisions we might actually be making about the future of a nation. So this is, is this something along the lines of the sorts of things you teach people at LMI? Absolutely. It's it's completely core, cool, Neil. So in our big three-month program, we have a, a residential program where people come and study and live with us for three months. Um, the first two weeks of that is an intensive study of John's gospel. And in John's gospel, Jesus says that um, that these things have been, like John says, that these things have been written about Jesus so that we might have life um, in his name. Um, and, and ultimately, if you want to be in politics or government, you have to have a theory about what a really good, flourishing human life looks like. Every public policy is ultimately dedicated to achieving some vision of the good life. And Jesus says that he's come for that. He's come to give us life. But as you study what Jesus thinks about life, you realize you can't have it other than in connection with him. And that interestingly, it might even be compatible with dying sometimes. Um, it's, it's a very strange theory of what a flourishing life looks like, that it can't be had apart from him and in relationship with him and his father. And so we start there. And then we go through um, a series of historical modules where we look at the big ideas that have shaped our Western culture from Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages and the modern revolutions that we've lived through. And in each of those cases, we're thinking about what, what, does, it, what does this culture think it means to have a flourishing life? Um, what, what, are the, what are the things that we love together in common? And what do Christians think about that? How has it shaped us and how have we shaped the world? And then we try to draw that together by talking about ideologies. What are the big ideological options and what are the strengths and weaknesses of them from a Christian perspective? And we're giving each other a framework to engage with the world through doing that. I guess apart from if we were living in a nation that had uh, Islamic Sharia law, that would be an ideological law-driven culture, wouldn't it? Or if we were Hindus and uh, we were under some new plan to increase Hindu nationalism, that might be an ideology. But the ones we're mainly dealing with in Australia, Dan, uh, either you've got uh, something which is a conservatism that might be grounded in that historic uh, Christian foundation that's been inherited from our British past, uh, even going back to the Great Awakening, or you might have a socialist, uh, even communist, people are saying these days, uh, alternative. Uh, One has an idea of the good life. The other has the idea of a good life. There's a battle going on, isn't there, for who can make their good life sound best? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Um, One of the things that is kind of deceptive for us is if if we lived under Islamic Sharia law or we lived in a Hindu nationalist society, as Christians, we'd be much more aware of the fact that we are confronted with an ideological difference in the in the government. Um, When we live in a society where it. It, it, everything feels normal to us. We don't see the ideologies as clearly. Um, and again, to quote David Foster Wallace, it's a little bit like being a fish and not knowing what water is, right? Because it's just there all the time. Like, um, So we live, we swim in ideologies all the time. And as you said, you've, you've kind of picked out probably two of the political flavours, the sort of conservative and, and, and progressive kind of options. And both of them, I would say, actually have, have their roots deeply in Christian thinking about the world. And both of them have the ways that they distort and move away from Christian thinking. But I wouldn't say that's fundamentally the ideology that we live in. Um, that's, that, those are the things that are obvious to us, but it's not the water. 
Um, the thing that the ideology that we ultimately live in is a kind of consumerist individualism that says that me and my feelings and my rights is the center of the world. And, and, and that's the thing that we're constantly fed and um, we're discipled in constantly by our social media and the television programs that we watch. Um, most of us who are Christians um, listening to this show, we probably spend, if, if we're really devout, you know, we might even read the Bible and pray for an hour every day. We'd, we'd kind of be involved in Christian things for a couple of hours on the weekend and maybe a Bible study. But I guarantee you, just looking at the stats, most of us are being discipled by the media three, four, five, six hours a day, every day of the week. And it's the ideology that's coming through our entertainment. Those are the things that really shape us. Dan, moving into this part of our conversation and uh, some challenging things, uh, but the people who will benefit most from what you do, uh, sometimes we think it's just, you know, those uh, special ultra-intelligent graduates who've got an eye on a political career, but uh, there's a bigger net here. Uh, The people that you're interested in training with a Christian worldview Who's a priority here for LMI to get into one of your short courses or your long ones? Yeah, that's a great question, Neil. And I I think about it under three headings. Um, So there are people who um, just generally have a kind of interest in how the society works. Um, Often, you know, often they're kind of, you know, you meet a lot of these people at university, they're law students or they're politics and government students. um, And they're interested in how the society works and being a part of how things run. And, and we want to shape those people um, to help them think Christianly about it because they're already going in that direction. Um, then there are a group of people who are just really passionate about a, about a particular issue, something that they want to see changed. So maybe that's, that's they're part of the pro-life movement. They just want to see abortion um, about abolished in Australia or they've got, they're particularly concerned about human trafficking or something like that. And, and, and we can help them to think about the networks and the strategies and the things that you need to be aware of if you're going to be in those issues. And then the third group of people, and this is probably the biggest one, are just a group of people who are a bit mystified about what's going on in our society. <laughs> what, is, what is going on around here? And I want to understand it a little bit more clearly. And I, I do want to be involved. I want to take seriously that command to pray for my leaders. And I want to be a positive influence. And so we take people like that. And that, people like that, all three of those categories, can come from lots of different backgrounds. Um, so I've taken people who are who are sparkies and jackaroos right through to very, very smart um, you know, lawyers and, and doctors. Um, you need a certain amount of academic ability. You need to, there's a, we do a lot of reading and we write essays, but you might not come from a standard academic background and we work with people to help to see whether they're going to be up for what we do. Um, but our politics needs people from lots of different backgrounds. We talked right at the start about the Canberra bubble. One of the ways to break that is to make sure we've got people, lots of different kinds of people involved. A lot of people think if I go to a Christian course, uh, well, I graduate at the other end and I'm all of a sudden I'm a minister of religion. And uh, this is, I know, not what you are about because you've got the sort of input that's coming in this worldview development that's coming from even both sides of the political spectrum. What sort of people are actually involved in this sort of mentoring leadership? Who's delivering these sorts of lectures that are shaping this generation? What are your thoughts here, Dan? Yeah, that's a really important question because the models and the people we put in front of other people um, really, really matter. Um, one of the things that I am quite passionate about is that I'm I'm a th- what you'd call a theological conservative, right? I And I... I believe the Bible is God's word. I take it really seriously. 
Um, I'm a bit more in the middle of the road when it comes to political conservatism or progressivism. I think there's things that are right and wrong about both sides of the political spectrum, and that might be different from a bunch of other people, and I think Christians can honestly disagree about that. I do think we need Christians on both sides of politics. Um, If we just, as Christians, become associated with only one party, for example, um, what tends to happen is that our party starts taking you for granted and then doing exactly the opposite of what you want anyway. Um, And so we we need Christians across the board. So we've got to sometimes put up with Christians who think a little bit differently about us on the political issues, but we can be united fundamentally about our allegiance to Jesus. And so here, I I take people from across the political spectrum, and our our lecturers tend to come more from the conservative side of politics, um, and they tend to come from within a... Uh, an evangelical Bible-believing Christian foundation. Um, But I do have people come and teach for us from a Catholic church background. I have people who come from both, you know, the Labor tradition and the Liberal Party tradition. Um, And I I deliberately do that because I want to see Christians who are living out their faith in different spheres of the world. And that produces robust conversations. One of the things that's delightful about LMI is that we get into Barneys about these things with each other. And as it should be, um, because we want to talk about these issues. I was going to ask you about how robust conversations might get, because (laughs) if I was, and you say, you know, most of those uh, leaders sort of lean to the conservative side. But if I was a radical progressive and I thought, but hey, I'm a Christian, uh, I might want to enroll in one of your courses because I want to set some of these guys right. Uh, Do you have that sort of, uh, you know, when you talk about a, you know, a a Barney, when you talk about that sort of robust conversation, are there people who are actually going to the course? They're looking to actually learn, but they're bringing their own perspectives and they're convinced that they are right too. And that's where you get these sort of robust discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that I guess I'm always looking for in people who want to come is a, is a sense of humility. Like we all need to recognise that we can grow and learn, but you do need some conviction as well. Like you need to have a little bit of backbone. Um, and occasionally, exactly what you what you just described, people will come sign up and they're they're, they're here kind of set us straight on our on our kind of wayward views. Um, and that does often produce a pretty a pretty strong set of conversations. One of the things that is a priority for me in those moments is to keep pointing each other back to the fact that we're followers of Jesus first. And if our political identity is more important to us than our our Christian identity as followers of Jesus, then actually the conversations will never be any good. Because um, at the end of the day, it will just be about beating each other over the head. If we can agree on the fact that we're followers of Jesus and the Bible has something to say about this, we can make some progress on our political disagreements as well. Uh, followers of Jesus, interesting here because some people say, oh, what has religion or our Christianity got to do with politics? Well, Jesus is called the king and the king it leads a kingdom. And all of a sudden you realize that, wait a minute, a king is a political uh, way of thinking about uh, managing a kingdom. So uh, let's not get it too much into that for the moment because we could go off on a big tangent on that. But because I wanted to ask you, Dan, um, if for listeners thinking, well, where does the rubber meet the road here? And uh, here we let me just throw you into the deep end because we've just had this week's federal budget. And last night, uh, some listeners who are really political animals might well have uh, tuned in and watched the budget reply uh, from Peter Dutton. Um, I wonder whether you've got a a thought or two around the federal budget and what that tells us about the priorities of each side. And maybe the priorities of each side are all bad. 
maybe some of them are good and some of them are bad. What are your thoughts here about what the budget tells us? Yeah, I want to be right up front. I haven't had a chance to listen to to Peter Dutton's reply speech yet, so um, I, I'm speaking from a position of some level of ignorance. And I also want to say it's not my area of expertise, and it's easy to kind of wade in there with all your opinions, and and sometimes we need a bit more humility. But my take my take on it fundamentally is that it's a pretty middle of the road budget. Um, there's there's things that I think some of us would find concerning. There's things that are pretty good. Um, it's a it's a pretty straightforward kind of vanilla kind of budget. Every big decision. Will you know? Will there'll be things that you can find that are problems and things that you like? The more important question is the one that you're asked right at the start, which is what does it say about our priorities? And this takes me back to what we were saying before about an ideology or a, a political party's at its very basis a system of things that we love. And that's what our priorities are. What do we love more than other things? And there are things about this budget that I think are really interesting. I think there's a there's a really good concern for some of those who are most kind of marginal in our society. Um, but I, I think. It was interesting to hear the way the government explained a lot of its priorities, often from personal experience. So Anthony Albanese's experience of growing up as the son of a single mum and Katie Gallagher and Jim Chalmers. Um, it's sometimes really helpful to hear those personal experiences. But our society's become one in which personal experience is often the authority for everything that we do. And so here's an interesting kind of thought. One of the things that we love, and the budget said to me that we really love, is our own personal experience. We take that as the authority for whatever we do. Um, it felt right to me, so therefore it's the right thing to do. Um, I don't know that that's actually a really wise way to think about whether a budget is good or not. Um, it's it's not the authority of my personal experience that determines the right or wrong of a budget. Um, it's a whole bunch of other factors. Now, there are lots of things in this budget that are right or wrong. But it's ultimately right or wrong because of your experience. And you've got uh, the Albanese story. And uh, last night in the budget reply, the opposition leader was reflecting on his own uh, teenage job working in a butcher shop. And, uh, you know, cleaning and serving and all of those difficult things that happen when you're working in a butcher shop. There's something in there, isn't there, that our leaders want to identify uh, with what they see as ordinary people. And uh, ordinary people... Here I would say... Yeah, Neil, I reckon here you're actually identifying what's really common in our ideology. So right and left really matter, but it's often the things that are much more hidden. It's the water that you don't see that's the ideology. And here here you're picking up on it. What kinds of arguments are persuasive in our society where they're the arguments that come from my personal experience. So in the same-sex marriage debate or in transgender discussions, it's how I feel that determines what I should be allowed to do. That's our ideology. And as Christians, that's one of the places where we really want to go, hmm, is that is that right? Is that the way that I think as a Christian? Maybe I do without, I haven't been questioned on it. And what does a Christian way of thinking about the world really say? Yeah. And, of course, the people who are contributing into the policy formations here are the ones who are not necessarily the politicians, but it's this bureaucracy. It's those public servants who are contributing here. So, uh, you know, there are some who might say uh, the government keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, There's a concern about big government, and there might be a Christian uh, position around that, or the welfare state mentality. And uh, if you're going to really identify with uh, lower socioeconomic, and I remember when I was working in the butcher shop, uh, there's a certain sense in which you're appealing to people, but you might actually be selling an ideology to there as well. And you might have both sides selling the same ideology, uh, and it might not necessarily be Christian aligned either. Uh, thoughts here from you, Dan? Yeah, absolutely, Neil. That's very insightful. I think I think that's exactly right, that 
um, one of the dangers for government, whether you're on the right or the left, um, is that you, because you're in government, you think that government's the answer to everything. Um, and and as Christians, we have some resources in the Bible that help us to think that that might not be true, right? Um, the fact that Jesus, as you said before, is is announced as the the sovereign, the king of kings and, and lords of lords, says that there are some kinds of rule and authority that only belong to him. And there are other kinds of rule and authority that he's appointed other people to do. So Romans 13 tells us that he's appointed government as his ministers, but they don't have like unlimited authority to do whatever they want. They have a specific kind of authority from Jesus. And there are, and Jesus has set up other kinds of authorities and, and, and spheres of life that we should live in. And one of the temptations for government on both sides is to keep making more of itself. Um, and I think, I think that is a thing that we always have to ask questions about. It's easy to overdo it. Like our society keeps getting bigger also because we have more people. Um, and so government keeps growing in response to that. And and often we can be a little bit, uh, we have double standards. We often as individuals want the government to, f- to fix my particular problem. Um, but then we, when we look at it fixing someone else's problem, we have a problem where we get cranky about that. Um, and so if we want to be rigorously conservative in the size of our view, our view of the size of government, we need to actually sometimes step up ourselves to fix more of our problems and build more of our social um, groups that help to do that. Yeah. Powerful thought, rule and authority belonging to God, Um, because we might actually boil it down to say what we think about God actually is going to direct the sort of ideology that we're going to align with. Uh, So, yes, I believe God. Uh, I'll follow God. I'll find out what his priorities are. Uh, If I don't believe in God, I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to find out what the priorities are on the other side. And it all, I guess, contributes into the way we think about how power then is used. Uh, And power starts with what we believe. So uh, what we see ruling in Australia right now is based on what people believe and that what they're trying to bring about, as you were saying a little bit earlier, is what do we think a good life looks like? So power is at the centre of all of this sort of uh, ideology too, isn't it? The pursuit of power. If you, if you don't get in there and uh, argue your point, you're missing out. But you've got to actually exert your power somehow. Yeah, that's, that's spot on as well. And I think probably the most important political contribution that, that Christians have made to their societies um, is the recognition um, that the, the gospel announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord um, also comes with it the, the implication um, that that Caesar or whoever the boss of the particular society is not, or at least not in the same way that he used to be. Um, his position has now kind of been um, relativized. It's kind of been limited and put in its place. And it might there might be good things that he can do, um, but they're now limited and smaller than they were before. And every time Christians make that good confession, as 1 Timothy calls it, they say that Jesus is Lord, they're making a political statement, as you said before. And that's the most important political thing that Christians do. And, and through that, we keep reminding the government, um, just, just gently, um, that you've got a space that's proper to you, but it's not, it can't take over everything. Um, but the other thing that's, that's, a, that's important for Christians as we think about that is that as we think about power, it's not ultimately uh, just a war of all against all. Like it's not up to us to wrest power and do whatever it takes to kind of make sure that our, our view comes across because Jesus is Lord. Like he really is sitting at the right hand of the Father now, um, and and he has all power and authority, um, and so at the end of the day he will rule, 
it's important for us to be engaged, but we can do that without anxiety and without thinking that it's really going to come down to me to make it turn out right. Um, we can be deluded, and politicians often are deluded that it's all up to them, but that's just not real. And so Christians engage with a kind of joy and peace, I think, as we do this. Uh, but Dan, where does that fit with the cultural mandate that we have from Genesis uh, to go forth and multiply and have dominion? And uh, so far as I'm aware, the cultural mandate mandate has never ended. Uh, there's a certain sense that uh, that mandate might be worked out in stewardship. So I guess stewardship means also not only just caring for the environment, but also how we limit or how we actually use the power that actually is for the good of people. Uh, what are your thoughts here around the Christian and our responsibility? Yeah, that's a really good um, pickup as well there, because often we use power to mean something negative. Um, and in our society, often we think of power as oppression, like it's kind of forcing other people to do something. But but power is, is neutral. Um, power can be used for good or for bad. And Paul will talk about power... Um, in in one Corinthians, um, and talk about it in those kind of contexts that he he does come with power, um, and so, like you acknowledged, when God created us, He actually created us with responsibility and power uh, to kind of actually see His good creation order extended throughout the world. Um, I think we need to read and think about the cultural mandate in light of the whole story of the Bible, and that would be a big conversation. It, Something happens to the cultural mandate in the flood and with the and with Noah. I was just reading about this the other day. There's a, a new kind of mandate that gets given after the flood, and I think that changes something. And, but the most important principle there is to keep taking it all back to Jesus. Um, at the end of the day, Hebrews says, um, when we look at humanity, uh, like in the picture in the Psalms, as everything is set under their under our feet. When we look at humanity, that's just not true. Like we don't, we can't rule over the creation in the way that God said that we should. But when we look at Jesus, Hebrews two says we do see that. We see the one true human who rules over everything. Uh, and so for us, our cultural mandate now is ultimately, I think, something that's connected to Jesus. Um, it's about, again, being followers of him, making sure that we're proclaiming and living out the gospel, showing and saying that, taking responsibility for communities that we're a part of, living in them and structuring them in ways that honor Jesus in light of everything that he's revealed to us about God. Well, what a fascinating conversation it has been, Dan. Just loved every moment of it. And I know that there'll be some listeners who'll be hanging on every word. As some will be thinking, I'd love to go and do one of those short courses. I think some of your short courses are as short as just like three days, aren't they? And uh, some of them are three months. Yes, that's right. And uh, for people at different levels, uh, thinking about how you get a right thinking about power and about politics and about what's happening in Australia right now, um, for people who go to your website, Dan, uh, lmi.org.au, uh, when's your next intake? Say for your either your short courses or the long ones that are coming up, uh, how do people actually connect here? Yeah, if you go to our website, right up the top of it, you'll see uh, a couple of different options. One of them even just says apply now. And if you click on that, it'll give you the option to apply for a long the next one of those starts at the end of November, I think the 20th of November, uh, and runs through to the end of February. We have a short program called Categoria that's coming up in September. Uh, I think it's the 15th of September. And applications are open for both of those now, or you can put in an expression of interest and we'll get back to you with more details about how to apply for Categoria. 
Um, so both of those are options right now. The other thing that you might like to do is if, if it's not right for you right now, but you'd like to be informed about what we're doing, you can sign up for our newsletter. I was just looking at our website and realized we don't have a link right on the front page to let you do that. But if you click on the, the thing that says contact us and then just write a little message in the box that pops up saying, I'd like to know more, we'll sign you up to our newsletter and then you'll get a monthly um, insight into the things that we're doing and, and the things that we're thinking about politically in Australia at the moment. Wonderful opportunity here and for listeners, and I know they might be thinking either personally or you've got a son and a daughter who's studying at university and they've got their eyes on some sort of influential future and you think, well, how do I get them shaped by a Christian view of the world uh, rather than just the secularised view they might be getting in their current university studies? Uh, That might be something worthwhile, Uh, something worthwhile for churches, something worthwhile for youth leaders who've got some young people in their youth group uh, who really have got great potential and they're socially minded, they're politically minded, they want to do something special just to connect them with LMI. LMI stands for Lachlan Macquarie Institute. Lachlan Macquarie Institute. Here's that website once again for details about either the short or long courses, the category one coming at the end of September. You can inquire about that now. You've got the three-month course from the 20th of November to the end of February. It's a residential fellowship program. But lmi.org.au. And uh, while you're there, even if you don't sign up for detail about those, ask about getting on that newsletter once-a-month update and uh, with a special note each time from the Reverend Dr. Dan Anderson, who is Director and CEO of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. So it's lmi.org.au. Dan Anderson, always love our chats. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your insights with us today on 2020. Thanks so much, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.